What books do you return to over and over again? How does rereading a text provide clues, indication of a shift in your being, or as today's guest states, witness to a process of self-actualization? Perhaps you have thought about the act of rereading for pleasure, for spiritual growth, for contemplation, or for professional development. While I certainly had thought about some of these topics, today's conversation shed new light on the questions of rereading, rethinking, and re-engaging a text. I think what Belle does really, really well in this book and so much of her work is that she does, she balances that line between like being super critical of the state of things, right? Of the mm. history of things, but also remains like that sense of radical hope too. Mm. And I think, mm. I think maybe that's why I'm always like, when I need a good kick in the butt or whatever, I go to her work because it is both critical and full of radical hope. Today, a conversation about Bell Hooks' book of essays, Teaching to Transgress, Education as the Practice of Freedom. An iconic text of the Black feminist movement, the book is as relevant today as it was a quarter century ago when it was published. For educators, parents, teachers, feminists, anti-racists, and activists, the book's wide range of topics provides plenty of space for opening a series of challenging dialogues internally and with others. I'm Keaton, and this is The Rhizomatic Reader, a podcast designed to bring people and books into conversation across space and time. Today's guest is Maria Wallace. Maria was suggested as a guest by Shofei Han, who appeared on episode R7. I also went to graduate school with Maria. She is a brilliant, thoughtful, evocative, and intentional science educator. Revisiting this text, grappling with its complexity and questions, was an important part of my summer journey and arrives to you at the precipice of a new academic year and amidst a flurry of ongoing shifts in the world of education, social justice, and our personal lives. We recorded this conversation in June, 2021. How do you think about, you know, your reading life? What does yeah. that question do for you? I often would characterize myself as not a reader, as a slow reader, if I am to read. Um, I did not grow up like being like, you know, uh, super thirsty to read all the time everywhere I was. Um, I read out of, I felt like necessity for either, and to some extent, I feel like now I still read out of necessity, not just because of my job, but because I want to be moved a particular way or moved differently from whatever state of being or idea I'm residing within. Or, and I don't really read, and so this is one of the things I was thinking about, I don't really read non-fiction uh, fiction. books. That's just like a general thing that you don't like enjoy reading I've fiction? I've never been, gra like I've never gravitated towards fiction, even growing up. Like I really didn't read a lot of, um, 
I mean, maybe one Harry Potter book, but that was like, I had never followed that. I was always, I was thinking about this. It's always gravitated to, if I did read a quote unquote fiction, it was presented as like very autobiographical of the day-to-day encounters of people. Um, But most often if I picked up something that kind of looked like a novel when I was younger, it was probably nonfiction, like memoir style. Um, and, and that was something, I guess, that I started to reflect on the more and more as I was listening to other you know, episodes is, I think I found interest in like, um, just like the possibility and the dynamics of the everyday, like daily life as it is. And, and I, whether that was presented in narrative form, like a memoir or, um, textbooky type of form, but that nonfiction was always about like the pieces of the world and more than the world that we were actively like negotiating, I think. Um, so that, that's been interesting to think about. And so even now looking back, you know, that kind of, um, is probably what motivated me to pull books that I did, you know, when I was younger or a teenager and like why I felt like the need to go to a library or a bookstore and just sit there and explore, like, what are the stories that invite me in, I guess. And they were always lived realities of a present moment kind of for an individual or so forth. And, and I think, you know, as I was thinking about this question, I I wrote down, you know, a question that came to mind for me is like, could the daily life that is captured in things like memoirs or captured in things like nonfiction texts, whether they're narrative, like whatever format they're in, be like the imaginary, right? Like, or the opportunity to imagine otherwise. And so I guess I, and this is the other thing that I was thinking about is, I guess I wanted to engage text where I didn't feel like the author had like a particular plot in mind or a character imposed on somebody. Um, And so I think that was probably always like, I don't wanna have to worry about a plot. I just wanna roll with how we are and and see what comes to light that way. Something you said that I think is two things really, but one is, you know, you said that you try to pick books that will move you to think otherwise. How do you find those books, right? I mean, we've talked about this before. There's a, there's a real difficulty sometimes in finding things that will move you in a different direction, given the way books are publicized, put out, whatever the case is. So how did you do that either in your younger life or even in your contemporary reading life? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, I think Sometimes, of course, it's like, oh, somebody's reading this. I don't understand what that is. I'm going to read it and hope that it it triggers me elsewhere. That is also, in some ways, characteristic of my reading style is where I'll pick up multiple books at multiple times and read, like, multiple chapters from one and then go to another. And so I think sometimes it's, maybe it's one chapter in a book that moves me and I'm like, Oh, okay. I've moved. I need to pivot and I'll go grab another book and read chapter like seven and not even start from the beginning and go there. And so I think it's often kind of like what 
reveals maybe a story about the world or reveals a story about myself or reveals a question that I had never considered before um, or feeling that invites me into like, that creates a space or an opening for me to follow rather than like being like, yeah, this is what we did. This is how we did it. Like I'm retelling you what I think we know. Um, I want somebody to tell me what we don't know, what to, what might else be possible. And so I think I look for in authors or texts, even when I was younger, maybe that were, didn't know that they were doing that. Like when they wrote a memoir to reveal what might else be possible, you know, is possible, but, but they were doing it in their writing. Like, I remember one book that I read front to back when I was like in high school called The Glass Castle. And I remember like that was one book that I constantly like, and I think they've made a movie out of it now by Jeanette Wells, I think is her name. And um, it was a there, it was a family that was homeless navigating with this dream of living in a glass castle at one point, you know, and all the things that they navigated as being a homeless family on the move constantly. And so I guess if I think back to that particular text, like there's something I think, you know, fascinating about like negotiating a life on the move, right? Like that's not mm-hmm. stable. And, and the questions that are rendered thinkable for them are, you know, or us or brought to light is very different than somebody who has uh, or assumes to have a stable home, life, you know, home or residence or whatnot as well. Yeah. I mean, you also said this thing about imagining otherwise. And, you know, I think we believe fiction is the only place to imagine, but you just saying at the beginning right there, and I never really thought about this, but you just saying that, you know, nonfiction is also a way to imagine otherwise. Can you say more about that as part of your reading habit? Yeah, that's a great observation, I think. And cool to think about further, I think, um, is that I mean, we have such a complicated, like, dynamic world that we are living in already. Yeah. Like, that is always already around us doing different things that has a history, that has an unknown present future, all these temporal dynamics that are mind blowing. You know, when we really sit down and grapple with, like, what it is that all the, the quantum, you know, relationships that aren't visible but felt or felt, but not visible, you know, and there are all these complicated dynamics to the things that we describe as real or reality that feel often very constructed and very much fictitious in its, because it's constructed, you know, by humans, by our relationship with institutions, by norms of engagement. And so I think maybe that's why I start to think that, or said, you know, nonfiction is an an imaginary place that could also be reimagined otherwise or is always being reimagined. I I like this this way of thinking that you're talking about that memoir can also be a way of imagining, Mm. you know, other people's lived realities or like it doesn't have to be fictional. Right. Now, something else you said that I'm, I know people will be curious about because I get questions about it all the time, is that you say that you're reading multiple things at a time. And people are, you know, I I know a lot of my friends who are fascinated that I'm reading seven or 10 books at the same time. And they're like, how do you keep it all straight? 
how how do you do that as part of your reading practice? That's a good question. I, my quick answer is I don't keep it all straight. <laughs> um, right. I don't. The other part that adds some complexity to this is to also reading across different modes of representation. So for teaching to transgress, I have a hard copy. I also have been reading it on my Kindle. I also have been listening oh. to audiobook. And so I think mm. that's the other thing that I'm constantly now because I commute a lot. And so how do I engage with a text on a, an hour and a half long commute too, that I'm interested in almost a meditative state getting me to work, you know? And, um, and so I don't keep it all straight. Um, even when I have all the same modality, like even if I'm all reading all hard copies, I would say that that is one thing though, that excites me, right. About like, I, when I, I finally, I think moved past the idea that I had to read to get a particular message in grad school, like, mm. you know, in K-12 school, the way reading is often taught is like, you have to comprehend this the way I tell you to comprehend this. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think perhaps that's why I started to like not affiliate myself with the identity of a reader, you know, but then I was in a class in grad mm -hmm. school and I, I shared this with somebody the other day about like reading texts that we don't even understand as they are like right now. And I said, I got some advice in grad school that said, find the thing in the text that resonates or that triggers you to move differently, apply it to your field or see the connection to your field and run with that. Like, it's not like, if you don't get the whole message, okay, we can, but if there is something in that, that exchange that renders something different for you or moves you, hold on to it and go with it. So I, I think maybe it comes back to like, what is the objective of your reading life? Is it, you know, or for a particular moment in time or for a task is figuring out. So my objective is to have kind of, um, you know, a tasting of text that talk yeah. to each other. Um, then it's important that I don't keep it straight, like, um, and, and see how it blends together and so forth. So you said that you felt like you needed to read this book again. I'm assuming you've read it multiple times. One reason why I chose Bell Hooks Teaches to Transgress is like, I'm in this moment of transition, like physically and emotionally all and scout like research wise and just, and where my attention can land and, and for teaching to transgress, it was always like a moment where I, I knew it would kind of re recalibrate me to some of the things that I knew, knew that I always needed to grapple with or sit with or, or remind myself of. And, and Bell Hooks is great in all of her work around doing that, but, but because I'm a lot of what I've done in the past and, and will do moving forward is grappling with like how we, think about teacher education or the concept of the teacher altogether. And, and I think for a lot of people, this book, Teaching to Transgress, is like the hallmark place to explore that type of question. So that's kind of why I was like, 
I need to reread it. So I'm going to tell Paul, this is what we're going to talk about. And I need this in my life. Even if I don't know why yet, I just have to go there. <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. I mean, it's, I think this is like the fifth time that I've read this book. Uh, so it's one of the few books in the world that I've read multiple times. Partially that's because I've taught the book, but, right, right, right. Uh, but you know, we read it in uh, graduate school and, but every time I come to the book, something else emerges. There's a, there's a different thing that comes out, which is one of the things I think is fascinating, given that this book was written, you know, almost 25 years ago. I, know, I mean, I it's know, really, it's pretty incredible. I mean, there's a lot of big themes that she talks about in the book, but mm -hmm. one of my favorite chapters is mm -hmm. where she talks about what theory is, what it might be, what are the perceptions about it and so forth. And, um, and I think dear, like, where is the chapter? It's uh, chapter five. It starts on page five. 59. I mean, I think I, in grad school and it still hits me is the first sentence of page 59. I came to theory because I was hurting. The pain within me was so intense that I could not go on living. I came to theory desperate, wanting to comprehend, to grasp what was happening around and within me. Um, and then she goes on to say, I, I saw in theory a location for healing. And yes. so I think that, like, I remember just being blown away in grad school by that quote and coming to it again. It was like, oh, this is, this is why theory and theorizing speaks uh to like my whole sense of self i guess um and it is for me like where the possibility is rendered thinkable to do otherwise um and so i think i had you know been in a place where that was not possible whatsoever or or told not to do it you know you mean, you mean in k-12 I will k-12 and higher education so so right now there's still this this and, and I resonate with this. I mean, I completely understand. You know, chapter five in this book is probably one of the most important chapters to my own yeah. professional development. It's it's a chapter you have to go back and read. You know, one of the themes in this book that always sticks out to me, but continues to stick out to me, and it's this chapter. It's many other chapters. Is this yeah. idea of you know anti intellectualism? Yeah. Of theory being inaccessible to people, people thinking that theory is somehow tied to some sort of like erudite language that you can't, you know, and she really tries in this book to say, no, theorizing is an everyday practice. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a way of making sense of your experience. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a theme that she brings up across the book too, that I think gets at this, this role of theorizing everyday experience is um, when you think about, you know, teaching, whether it's in K-12 or, or teacher ed or, you know, in higher ed, you know, whatever the discipline, wherever you, or maybe not even in an educational institution, like teaching mm -hmm. for her is um, mm -hmm. about self-accusation, self oh, actualization. Right. Yeah, self-actualization. And, and I think that's also what theory is. Say more. What, how is theory uh, about self-actualization? I think, I mean, if we re go back to this idea of uh, theorizing and theory is in a, of always already a part of us as we navigate, right, the imaginary real world that we're in, if we go back to that, the dichotomy between fiction and nonfiction, right, 
when we walk through the halls, when we walk down the street, when we lay in the grass, right? Um, when we go in an airplane, we are moving implicitly and explicitly between like a fiction and a, and a nonfiction in, in, and I think in that tension or that movement across like wherever you're at, even if you're just walking your dog or eating dinner, you know, there are relationships that are exploding quietly, not, you know, and loudly all at the same time. And I think when you start to become attuned to that, theory is what made that attunement possible, I will say. But when you start to become attuned to it, you're also in the act of theorizing. Like you are living out theory as everyday practice when you recognize those those the relationships, I think, and and, and in relation, right? Like you have to have a feature of self-actualization. Mm-hmm. Um, the self-actualization stuff is interesting to me because she is critiquing so much about how the academy dehumanizes us. How it, you know, I'm 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 constantly struck when I read this book at the ways that she critiques faculty and yeah. their la- their lack of care yeah for the act of teaching itself mm-hmm. yeah i think that's i just was jotting down what you said the academy dehumanizes us and i think that's really powerful in that especially when i think back to what i shared earlier about when i realize i'm becoming a person i don't want to be yeah talk about that I have to pick up and pivot or pick up a text, pick up, say, like, what if I need a moment to queer? I've been thinking about like what queering space and queering encounters and queered encounters a lot lately. And um, mm-hmm. and I think when I realize I don't want to, you know, I'm becoming the person I don't want to be. I think there's this feature of like, I'm recognizing maybe when dehumanization is happening to me and or others. Like when, when somebody or something or some program or whatever is being, you know, is under the, the pressure of being dehumanized. I think that's when it's time for me to pick up somebody like Bell Hooks to remind us of like that. So and, like, how do, how do you feel like her book helps to pull you away from that precipice of dehumani- dehumanization. I think it got, like when you brought up too, like this, in, this focus of care, right? Like she talks about so deeply, like the care work in teaching. And I think I've even just as of yesterday been reminded of the way in which care is not just like happenstance, right? It's intentional work. It, it, like I was talking to somebody yesterday where they were very intentionally caring for the physical design of where and why we have a water cooler, where and why we have mm. a coffee machine, because I was starting to realize that my own coffee machine and my Keurig that was in my office that I carried in from an un- old, one office to a new office is a relic of a culture where nobody interacts because we can't gather and discuss the day-to-day theorizing, right? Like of our interactions in a place together. Um, 
and, and what work we're doing, but it, when the care is goes into action and is thought about and is intentional, because remember, like, yeah, care can be happenstance, but I would say if we're trying to work towards equity or justice or anti-oppressive like educational experience, it has to be very intentional too. Um, yeah. So, so I think that's, that's an interesting thing to go back to. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes. And in fact, you know, I, I frequently start classes off where I will talk about some of the things that I'm trying to enact in a classroom space. And, you know, one of the things that I do talk about is this quote, it's on page 13 and it goes to this idea of care and how she thinks of her own teaching practices. But, you know, it starts in the middle of the paragraph. She says, our work is not merely to share information but to share in the intellectual and spiritual growth of our students to teach in a manner that respects and cares for the souls of our students is essential. If we are to provide the necessary conditions Mm -hmm. where learning can most deeply and intimately begin. Yeah. So I spend a lot of time uh, talking to students at the beginning of a term in my classes about how do we create, and she does this throughout the book, you know, saying that in, in a lot of ways we have to help students unlearn this kind of hierarchical classroom structure, this kind of power based dynamic, which is really rooted in white capitalist heteropatriarchy, right? Uh, That just because I am the teacher does not mean that I am in charge of the space. Just because I am the teacher does not mean that I do not also learn or yeah. that I do not need to be cared for, right? Yeah. That, the, that if I'm setting up a caring relationship, that, that I care for you, but also yeah. I need reciprocal care back yeah. in the opposite yeah. direction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that. in the world comes from this book Mm -hmm. there's a quote and i can't remember exactly what page it's on but she says the most radical place of possibility is the classroom higher ed classroom and she and i sometimes when i share that quote i don't even say the higher ed classroom but because we've been talking about because i think that's that statement is true for any classroom the most radical place of possibility is the classroom but bell hooks specifically and relevant to our conversation now focuses on the higher ed classroom and to and she even talks about too like and i i've been explicit with some of my students about this this space this community that we have built and or engaging in whether we like it or we don't is sacred i view this as sacred space Mm -hmm. and a sacred encounter and 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 as such, we have to be very intentional about the care work that we employ or don't employ, you know, and be very careful there. Because I also tell them whether we know it or not, if we don't set our own conditions to create the conditions of possibility that we want for our community, conditions will manifest on their own. A culture will manifest on its own, whether 
it's supportive or conducive to my needs, your needs, our needs, the future of teacher education, you know? Um, so, so I think that is why I get, you know, I think what Belle does really, really well in this book and so much of her work is that she does, she balances that line between like being super critical of the state of things, right? Of the mm. history of things but also remains like that sense of radical hope too. Mm. And I think, mm. I think maybe that's why I'm always like, when I need a good kick in the butt or whatever, I go to her work because it is both critical and full of radical hope. Yeah, there's, a, I'll have to find the quote, but you know, there's, there is a quote in the book and it comes up several times, actually. It's, it's another theme in the text about, how do we do this balance between critique and utility is the word that I would use, right? And uh, one place it comes up is, is in the chapter where she's talking about Paulo Freire and her kind of yeah, yeah. tensions with Paulo Freire in the sense that he has a radically engaged dialogic pedagogy that she's trying to enact. He's also sexist. Yeah. And you know, you have to be able to think about how do yeah. you deal with the sexism. And she says, you know, it, there is a place for critique. We need critique, but we can't, for lack of a better word, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because something is problematic in this one area right, does right, not mean right. that it does not hold any right. sort of possibility. And I, right. I really think that that's an important thing Yes. to be thinking about in these contemporary times yeah. that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah. And I think when you first said utility, I was like, oh, I wonder what he means by this. But I think, you know, after you explaining it there, like, I think utility is the perfect word. Right. And I and I've come back to that phrase, too. Like, you can't necessarily throw the baby out of the bathwater with standardized, like standardized testing and all of these different like metrics of evaluation that have de designed our, our class. But we can problematize, reflect, redesign um, in ways that are more equitable, more just, more, you know, holistic, all the things, or, or arm teachers in ways that they know how to adapt or adjust or, uh, you know, um, supplement in ways that aren't possible within like the institution that is K-12 schooling, you know, um, and so I think that's a lot to ask of teachers, of course, and something to be mindful of. But I think, I think teaching wherever you are is, is demanding, complicated, deeply rigorous, mm. highly intellectual work mm. that, um, that just, we have to be very transparent about. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that what she's trying to say is that, and this goes back to your quote about the most radical space of possibility is the higher ed classroom yeah. is that if we don't take the opportunity to teach or to set up, not teach like in a hierarchical manner, but if we don't take the opportunity to set up an experience for students where yeah. they are able to grapple intensely with the complexity of theory, with the complexity of experience, identity, race, gender, class comes up in this book quite a bit yeah, um, yeah. Than I've thought about um, then in fact we have set them up for failure when they go out into the classroom or when they go out into the real world 
because they won't have any ability to grapple with the real ambiguities that come up when you're talking about any of this stuff, right? Like you're saying, yeah. standardized testing. Yeah. Well, of course there are problematics with standardized testing and also possibilities. Like how do we use standardized testing in a way that's going to help people achieve something or, or something I've been grappling with in my own pedagogy. And that I talk about a lot is that I, I think that students don't have any ability actually to think about possibilities on the other side of a problem. Yeah. Yeah to imagine otherwise, as you say. Yeah, well, and I think what you're reminding me about too uh, is like two, two questions, I guess. And I was trying to find the quote that speaks to this explicitly, mm-hmm. but the role, like what is at stake? What are the risks, right? Because as you know, Gert Bista and the beautiful risk of education. Yeah, it's a great book. You know, it, and she does it like there is great risk if we do not do the intentional care work. Like bodies, lives, identities are at stake for dehumanization. You, yes. you know, um, whether it's being like pushed into the the prison system or if it's being told their identity is not real, <laughs> you know, whatever it is. Um, thing, you know, we are working in times where where there's stuff at stake material, ideological, and in that there is risk, right? Always risk. So I think, again, going back to that, like, what is it? We have to recognize that the risk exists. So being able to see the multiple possibilities, the multiple ways to come at a problem or an issue or to address the thing that's at stake, um, we have, we have to be willing to take the risk. Mm-hmm. And we have to be willing to grapple with truth. Yeah, yeah. And the ways that truth is not an objective reality, but that in fact, truth can be multi-perspectival. It can be kaleidoscopic in some ways. You know, one of my quotes that I pulled out for for myself that I really, you know, think is, is really important to talk about in this book is on pages 28 and 29, when she's talking just about, you know, she's talking here about the fact that we're, we're moving into a space where there's narrow nationalism, isolationism, xenophobia, people are not being able to express their uh, perspective. Um, And on page 29, she says, part of our contemporary crisis is created by a lack of meaningful access to truth when this collective cultural consumption of an attachment to misinformation is coupled with the layers of lying individuals do in their personal lives, our capacity to face reality is severely diminished, diminished, as is our will to intervene and change unjust circumstances. Now, this is what I mean when I say there's, it's almost like she's an oracle. I mean, this is 1994, Maria. I was just about to remind us how far back she was writing this. This is 1994. So it's like, if that was happening in 1994, which we know it was, right? This is the kind of like revolt to the Clinton administration period when this is being written. It's the start of what some would argue is the, is the kind of, you know, Newt Gingrich, you know, uh, 
bust all truth revolution that sort of started in the mid 90s. I just, you know, what's at risk is not just people's lives and not just their subjectivities and all of this other kind of stuff, but what's actually at risk is truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And here we are. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting that you brought up truth because I was actually talking about this yesterday with one of my friends and colleagues where we just wrote a piece um, that's a poem mm. and and we've been getting comments from people that saying they're needing to reread it, reread it. And, um, and, and that goes back to what we were talking about earlier about this role of rereading reveals different truths, right. About you in a particular moment in time. And like, people will be saying like, we need this quote spoke to me this time. I wonder what it will be next time. And so it's like, what are the truths we're living at that particular time? that we need to respond Mm. to, um, move with, you know, confront, you know, whatever. But I think, I think actually that's an interesting idea is to think about rereading and the construction of truths. Now, my other question I had for you was, and I I was going to start with this question, actually, but I'm glad that, you know, the conversation just goes where it goes. Um, You know, I I was spending a lot of time preparing for this, thinking about, you know, what does it mean that we're both white people talking about Bell Hooks, who's a Black feminist scholar, and how that, you know, how our own subjectivities sort of influence and impact the way that this conversation is going to go. Yeah, no, I've been thinking and reflecting on that as well, especially like in the times, like I try not to watch a ton of news stuff and news coverage, but right now, like there is an onslaught of like, you know, critique around like critical race theory and like, and teaching like critical issues in education, like we've been talking about and you know, I've been thinking about that particular question you just asked in relation to like the what's confronting higher education too in this particular moment. And, and, you know, like, what would Bell Hook say, you know, exactly. And so there's two, two, two questions to address there. I think the one that you proposed, but then also like Bell Hooks would be like, teach on, teach on this. Education must be liberatory and who are we, you know, liberatory for all. And so part of that is asking and digging deep, you know, um, asking hard questions and going there. And so the other part to your original question is what does it mean for us as white, you know, individuals to be talking and and negotiating about Hook's work. I think like we're already blinded to an extent, like somebody else is going to talk about this or reread this very differently. And I think if we connect it back to this idea of self-actualization, like she is inviting me and my conversation earlier with that same student, I said, I feel like I'm in a moment right now where I really need to return to my whiteness. Like I need to ask Mm -hmm. critical questions about my whiteness. So how do you think that this book helps you grapple with whiteness? That's a good question. 
I mean, I think all like under hearing Bell talk about her experience as a black woman woman in academia, whether she was an undergrad student, faculty member, because she goes across different times in her life. And I think hearing yeah. her talk about how she perceives the actions of her peers who are whiter or feels the actions of her teachers or the decisions that are made at the institutional level or what who she has access to to like get information and i think that that's one very practical kind of thing that bell i think is very transparent about is like sharing her experience um in you know predominantly white institutions and you know a white supremacist uh like a supremacist country that is the u.s and and actually she reminded me too of like growing up in the south right i i want to go look i don't know where her hometown is but i want to go look now because um i think it's relevant and um but i think so there's that on the very practical level i think for me it's it's partially about one chapter that really sticks out to me about this grappling with whiteness is this chapter where she talks about like the rage of multiculturalism. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. you yeah. know, there's this, I agree with your assertion that she would say, you know, teach on, right? Yeah. Like it's okay to talk about this, even if yeah. you're a white person in that multiculturalism chapter, she's really talking about the multiculturalism movement of the 1990s, yeah, right, which right. was really rooted in this idea that if you just throw in a book by a person right, of color, exactly. or if you just add, you know, one voice of color yeah. that you somehow become anti-racist or decolonized, and this still right. goes on to a large extent, right. you have to, if you're going to do that work, you have to do your own reflection on your yeah. whiteness. Yeah. Yeah. And what the limitations are of your being able to teach that. Right. Right. Again, not to ignore it, right. not to say, well, because I'm white, I'm not going to teach right. um, just, Tony Morrison yeah. or I'm not going to teach, you know, bell hooks. Right. Right. But that I have to, to, to the limited perspective that you can bring to this conversation as a white person. Um, but I think there's also, there's also this sense of like, you know, you don't want to participate in tokenism of bringing uh, individuals like along for the ride, but you know, that are people of color. But the other thing is I don't, I want to take responsibility to some extent to bearing the weight of doing this work rather than asking somebody else to fill in for me. So, because I've been told too many times over that it is not the, the job of people of color to tell people what to do, tell white people how to not be racist. Um, white right. people have to do some work. And so I think that that is where I guess that comes up in the book, but also in our conversation here is that I have to be very careful, but also transparent, making my, my limitations known. Like there's only so much perspective I can give you here, but I can send you resources and so forth and invite, you know, guests, you know, to contribute their perspective also. But at the end of the day, white people have work to do. Yeah. And I think, you know, you know, to answer my own question about what does it mean for you and I as two white people to be right. reading bell hooks, what I keep coming back to is that actually it's, I believe it's quite important 
for white people to talk with other white people about the issues that get raised by, in this case, a black feminist scholar, right. Uh, right. people of color, and to not put the onus of responsibility for that work onto other people of color to be like, right. in, in other words, you know, I think we both know this. There's, there's a lot of, uh, among white people, there's a lot of anxiety around being called racist. There's a lot of anxiety around dealing with issues of race and it's cross-cut and intersectionality with gender and class. And And what ends up happening is that white people try to either say the right thing, which might not be the right thing. So you can't have a genuine and authentic conversation. Right, right. Or they try to say the thing that will get them validation from the person of color that like, look at me, I'm a good white person. When it's not that easy. Yeah. And, and actually it's not the person of color's responsibility to validate yeah. who you are as a white person. Yeah. I'm, I'm very interested in her discussions throughout the book about <clears throat> and this maybe ties to risk a little bit about like the, the, the pain that's associated with a lot yeah. of this work. Um, I, you know, right. I love that part too. Yeah. It, it's page 43. Yeah. You know, she talks about there's some degree of pain involved in giving up old ways of thinking and knowing yes. and learning new approaches. Yes. And, you know, I also like on page 42 that, um, you know, if you set up a classroom space where students are asked to put their subjectivity on the line, That's right. where they're asked to unlearn old ways, where we set up this community of care, where we're doing engaged pedagogical practice, students don't know how to do that because they haven't been raised in a system that does that shit, right? That's right. So they don't know how to do it. So one of your first tasks as a teacher is that you have to go through this whole process of helping the yes. students to unlearn. Yeah all of this stuff that is yeah. that comes with the banking model of education yeah. or the kind of top-down hierarchical stuff and that it is incredibly painful to unlearn yeah. that and that sometimes, I, I really appreciate this in the book, sometimes as teachers, we have to be okay with recognizing that it might not be until 20 years later that a student understands what we were doing, right? They might give yeah. us a bad evaluation. Yeah, that, yeah. They might say this professor didn't know what they were doing, or they might uh, complain the entire time they're in the class about, you know, why are we doing this stuff where we have to read out loud our, you know, autobiographies, or why are we reading this difficult stuff? I think she says at one point, doesn't she say something about like, a student said to her something about like, I thought this was a class on English literature. Why are we talking so much about race or something like that, race or gender or something. And, you know, you know, pain for me is, is something that I think is really, yeah. She allows us to, to wallow in pain. Yeah. I, yeah. Yes. And, and okay. So much to talk about here. Pain, but um, pain. There's a a phrase that one of my um, colleagues, Mark Higgins used in one of his pieces where he was talking about being wounded by thought or being Ah. wounded by a text. 
And I think that's kind of in some ways getting at what she's referring to here as pain. And, and I think one really powerful brief quote on page 43 that she says is, I respect that pain. And I think that's something we have as teachers have to make space for, right? And allow to, for students to grapple in these ways and, and be scaffolded through how to negotiate or think through or um, that pain. Because the other thing that I thought was super powerful and I related to, I think too, to some extent is on 42 and 43, she kind of talks about her students um, sharing their experiences, navigating that pain, I think. And on the bottom of 42, mm -hmm. she said, students taught me too that it's necessary to practice compassion in these new learning settings. I have not forgotten the day a student came to my class and told me, we take your class. We learn to look at the world from a critical standpoint, one that considers race, sex, and class, and we can't enjoy life anymore. Mm -hmm. And and I think that connects to another quote that I have written down from her on page 117, where she says, once you learn to look critically at yourself, you learn to look at everything around you with new eyes. Um, and then she goes on to talk about how white students, when they're learning to think more critically about questions of race and racism, going home for the holidays and mm -hmm. coming back and having a very different experience with their family or with um, relatives than they had come to known as nonfiction, as reality, as it is. Yeah, I, I also underline that thing that you uh, read from page 42 where she, you know, I, I love that, you know, I can't enjoy life yeah. as if, I mean, it's, a, it, it's, it's a troubling statement in one sense, but like, I, I do appreciate if I have had that experience as I have, uh, where a student comes and says, you know, your class really screwed up the way that I look at the world, right? Like I can't watch this film without being like this, or I can't go to this event without seeing this thing happening. And, yeah. you know, and, and in fact, that is, what liberation is about. And this is what education is supposed to be about, in my view. Yeah. It's supposed to be about seeing the world differently. Yeah. Developing a sense of radical empathy and compassion mm -hmm. for yeah. other people's lived experiences. Now, yeah. I don't want to take, a, I don't want people to live a miserable life on the planet. And I don't think that Bell Hooks does either. Right. But I do think that we've done our job as educators if we're allowed the space to be able to help students to not only come into self-actualization, but to come into a space where they can feel or recognize or understand somebody else's perspective, even if that's painful. And then our job is to help the students deal with how do you handle the painful aspects of coming to that consciousness. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think it's important. So both, so you pointed out earlier, like that phrase of like I can't enjoy life anymore is both problematic and like super real and relevant. And so I think I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Like as a white person, right? Like 
they, they might have been enjoying life all along, like, but as a, if you were a non-white person, you may not have been enjoying life at all. And so, so in that, it, you re, it reveals like the privilege of yes. that student's identity, right? But then also like what you're talking about is recognizing that, right, truth behaves of differently over time as you self-actualize, as you understand, not necessarily understand, but are attuned to the relationships mm. you've developed and or are developing and or breaking or, or reinventing, you know? Um, and I think, I think I really liked what you said too about this, the importance of radical empathy and compassion. And, and I think, you know, it can be both of these things like problematic and really real at the same time, I think, um, and, and important to attend to. And if we can, I think maybe also like, there's this, of course, this pressure to choose one of the over, you know, like this is just straight up problematic, but not recognize the possibility of what is coming to light from that student's claim to see the world differently. So I think that's the other thing that Bell Hooks does really well, right? is holding both truths yes. equally. Yes, I, I, I completely agree with that because even as I was saying the thing about radical empathy and compassion, you know, I was thinking in the back of my head, now the critique of this, radical empathy, radical compassion, especially for white people, is that then you fall into a space of white saviorism right? That it's like, or, or it falls into, you know, you use the word tokenism earlier, where it's this idea that like, or we can talk about essentialism, you right. know, it's very easy for people from privileged positions to understand the lived experience of somebody else, essentialize that onto everybody else. And then it becomes, you know, compassion or empathy become not ethical anymore because they're seen as trauma cases. And that's, that's a form of dehumanizing. We, you know, bell hooks allows us to say, we, you know, she doesn't say this in the book, but I think this yeah. is where our conversation is. You know, we could help students develop radical empathy, for example, while also holding the problematics of radical empathy yeah. intention, right? To say yeah. that like, it is a highly problematic concept that the outcome would be radical empathy. Yeah. It's also a process that allows us to see some possibility for something to happen where eventually someone might move out of radical empathy into a more praxis oriented, action oriented perspective. So we shouldn't throw it away. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that came to mind when you were describing that is that, well, in the in that particular example in the book, she's focusing on the student that she's teaching, their experiences, right? And she's citing them and you talked about how this is happening for students, but I think what she also does implicitly throughout the book is render that into the role of the teacher yes. and the responsibility of the teacher too, like their like care for themselves, care for their community, so forth. So I think, again, she, of course, blurs the line between this this positionality of teacher-student in that I think she's saying so many of the things that we ask of our students, we need to be, and caring for, for our students, we need to be doing for ourselves as teachers mm. as well. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I hope, you know, I hope that because you said at the outset that you, you chose this book for, you know, to help you stop becoming a person you didn't like yourself becoming or a teacher that you didn't. And I get that. I totally understand it. I mean, I, it, it was very fruitful for me to reread the book again for like the fourth or fifth time and to just really ponder a lot of important questions that she, that are still yeah. so relevant. Yeah. So relevant. Yeah, for sure. Do you have any closing thoughts? I'm going to read what we wrote down together. Rereading is self-actualization. Yeah. So we could break that down further. (laughs) Rereading what, right? Like, are we talking about rereading text, like actual hard copy books? Or are we rereading the world, right? Are we rereading ourselves? Are we rereading our responsibility? Are we rereading our relationships with other, you know, whatever it is. But in that act of rereading, it's a form also of self-actualization that then is only the secret ingredient that Bell Hooks describes to practice education as freedom. Maria Wallace is an assistant professor in the Center for Science and Math Education at the University of Southern Mississippi. Earning a PhD in curriculum and instruction with specializations in curriculum theory, science education, and a graduate minor in women's and gender studies from Louisiana State University, Dr. Wallace's research and teaching aim to deterritorialize science teachers' subjectivities and practice. Drawing on critical and creative modes of inquiry, Dr. Wallace's research reimagines ways science teachers are known, named, and reproduced. You can follow Maria on Twitter, at MFG Wallace. I'm always open to your comments, suggestions, and insights. Feel free to email me, risoreader at gmail.com or contact me through our Rhizomatic Reader Instagram account, at Rhizoreader. You can listen again, share this conversation, and rate our podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. You can find a transcript of this conversation and show notes on the episode link of our website, www.rhizoreader.com. Our theme music is composed by Leo Sokolovsky, copyright-free and available on SoundCloud. All music in today's episode is copyright-free and used with appropriate permissions. My name is Peyton, and this has been The Rhizomatic Reader. (laughs) 